<laughs> I'm trapped in a tower, Ernie. A tower made out of endless litigation surrounding any number of commercial or residential properties in Southern California and certain parts of Baja. Mm. The system, man, it's not fair. Not fair. Everything I do is 100% legal. 100%. Not always according to the letter or spirit of the law, but, you know, these days, you got to be willing to live in a moral gray area. That's where fortunes are made. I'm the gray man in the gray area. So what wholesalers do you think you'd be pulling from? I have great relationships with all the major... How do you guys know each other, anyway? No, we uh, belong to the ancient and benevolent order of the Lynx. Ernie's a luminous knight, I'm a squire. It's just a social club, you know? Beer and softball. No, it's not. It's way more than that. We, we possess secret knowledge. Secret knowledge of what? Uh, yeah, I can't tell you. can't tell you, but um, basically secrets of alchemy. Okay, so do you guys do weird shit? Like robes and candles and then Latin. No, 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 no. It's not like that. What are you talking about? It's exactly like that. Okay, hey, this is awesome, but I'm going to need a little more context. How about we do it over dinner? Sure, but maybe first I can take you for a spin through our catalogs. You want my business, you're going to have to wine and dine me. I'm captain, for Christ's sakes. Hello and welcome to Pod 49, a fan appreciation podcast about the excellent AMC Network show Lodge 49, which will be debuting its season two with a lot of excitement on August 12th. You may or may, may not be listening to this before or after that date, but those are the details. We, we were not around. We did not exist as an entity, as a podcast for season one. So in excitement and preview for season two, we've are launching this podcast first with a, two episodes of kind of recap is a strong word discussions on season one. Uh, you can hear part one. Uh, we are posting these both at the same time. Uh, so listen to that first if you want. I don't know. Do you? Um, and then we will be starting a weekly episode recap uh, show. So let me introduce my two co-hosts, uh, Jim and Bart. They are literally sharing a mic sharing ear pods and sharing warm heat wave personal space just to podcast for you how you doing today fellas good 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 ready doing great we are drinking some beers out of our mugs uh lynx lodge style tankards um, Modelo. mexican beer in a tankard uh in celebration of the lodge that it sounds imported like. lagers we could just end the podcast right there and we would have come up with a nice haiku about the show. Um, <laughs> all right. So the last episode, we really dug into, you know, started the characters, our initial impressions, a lot about why we like the show. We're going to go a, a couple layers deeper and look at some themes of the show. This is obviously going to be spoiler heavy. We're not concerned about what you have heard or not heard. Uh, we trust you to be the master of what you want to engage with, uh, you know, live free or die. So you can decide to listen to it or not, but you have been warned that there will be spoilers. So whatever. Um, and so we're going to jump off here. And the thing that we were kind of, we didn't, didn't fully finish fleshing out the characters. The first thing I do is talk about Ernie. The, what I'd say is the third leg of the stool on these characters. Um, he is played by Brett Jennings. And he and Dud, uh, you know, they're unintentional best friends, uh, unintentional allies, unintentional strange bedfellows. And uh, Ernie is a longtime member of the Lodge and, and in many ways is the sponsor of Dud as he enters 
Lodge 49. Bart, uh, why do you love Ernie so much? Ernie is, uh, you know, I think everybody can kind of get behind him because, you know, we see that he's uh, been at this, you know, job for a while, sells uh, plumbing supplies and, you know, sort of slowly climbing the ladder, not really getting anywhere. And, you know, we know that he is um, in love with Connie and uh, he can't really come out about it. And he's got, you know, he's kind of got, he's got a lot of tough luck. I mean, our first introduction to him, he's coming out of the house basically in nothing but his underwear and he's shooting at the crows that are waking him up. So, you know, he kind of seems like a very sympathetic character from the go. I'm always such a sucker when I watch these things that I can't help myself, even though I'm older and sort of aware of it. Like I keep rooting and thinking and hoping that the characters that I like are going to win somehow. And uh, I feel like Ernie's whole journey is about kind of spinning wheels and not really getting anywhere the thing i love about ernie in, is in some of what you said there is he's so like late middle age kind of frustrated hits his goals for success have already been ratcheted down he's already uh you know kind of compromised and so it just adds to the bitterness in the bile and he's actually not a overall bitter character that's actually one of the great things he actually always perseveres even as he kind of like acknowledges understands and does choke on his bitterness but it doesn't define him, but he, and that's the extra sting is that it is all, what he wants is such a compromise that when that doesn't happen, he just gets extra pissed off, right? Like it's like, I even like the the simple pleasures, which I am willing to accept at this point are still elusive and out of reach. Even though he has to deal with all this drudgery and disappointment, um, he always seems to keep hope alive that things are gonna get better for him. And toward the end, that's really tested, and he's seems to be in a really dark place. And then the last thing we see is him getting in that what was it a van or a truck? Custom van. Custom van, and and being like, "What the heck? Let's go to Mexico." I think that last scene really kind of sums up Ernie's whole character. That he's kind of he's like this. This seems like a pointless thing, but ah, ah fuck it. But he has one of my favorite quotes of the season is where he says something along, you know, like. Dud is giving him some advice or whatever, and he's like, "This has got to be a new low taking advice from a homeless pool guy." Um, <laughs> like just like that kind of like off the off the cuff line, just like, "Is this really where my life is at?" That which also acknowledges that the advice is at least partially sound. You know, like that that actually that that kind of like dejected acknowledgement is part of that statement. Um, I actually been reading. I'm almost finished. Jim Gavin's. Um, in Jim Gavin's novel, which now I can't even remember the name of it. Middle or short story. Was it a short, short story? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Short story collection. Yeah, we could do a, We could all read it and do a whole episode on that. Oh yes. That's definitely happening. And I can hand it off soon, but, and I, and I'm pretty sure I read somewhere recently that Jim Gavin actually, uh, his dad was somehow involved in the plumbing supply business and there is plumbing supply references, storylines and plot points in his short story uh, book as well. I thought he was. I thought he was actually was? had that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's what I read. Okay, um, that makes a lot of sense because that is um, plumbing supplies and the ecosystem around how uh, plumbing works is definitely a theme through everything I've encountered of Jim Gavin. And Ernie is the exemplifier of that in the show. Right. We have Ernie, Dud, and Liz. Those are the our three legs of the stool that 
we follow along in the show and we'll be doing many, you know, updates on their plot points, I'm sure, as season two rolls out. Um, although I don't want to make a, a disservice to all the great side and secondary characters on the show. But those are the they are the moral, spiritual and character pieces at the center of Lodge 49. But let's move away from specific characters and jump into some of the themes of the show. One, and this is again, if you when you read the the Jim Gavin's pre-lodge stuff, this even hits home even more. But this idea that we're all like we're on the sort of knife's edge of some late stage capitalism where it all works so efficiently that it that it works horribly type of conundrum. And we sort of understand that haves and have nots and not only understand them, but just sort of accepted that as some kind of uh karmatic uh, universal moral um uh, sentence Inevitable. on where you are. And so rather than be like an Upton Sinclair or these other kind of like capitalist muckrakers through the years, there is such an acceptance of show the system, begrudging acceptance of the system, and then magical thinking about what might emerge, which I think is really the, the heart of its commentary about, about late stage capitalism. So that's the kind of milieu the kind of almost filter that all things on the show I think can be viewed on what about that aspect of the show grabbed you one thing uh for me that was a recurring theme and that really brought home the ways in which capitalism kind of twists sort of genuine sentiment or feeling to nefarious ends was uh in the very first episode Dud is talking with Alice in the donut shop about how he owes his sister Liz all this money and how his life isn't going so great. And he says, we don't have to live like this. There's got to be another way. And then these dudes are sitting a couple booths over and they hear him and they turn and they take this, you know, genuine expression from him of, you know, there's got to be another way to live. And they turn it into this slogan for their scam condo development that they're going to put on the closed down aeronautics factory. And they, their slogan is, is there another way to live? And then you start seeing that on billboards around and they've got it in there. Ernie crashes their meeting when he's trying to figure out how to meet Captain and they've got it on a PowerPoint. I think that is a big theme that, you know, we're all thinking about over the past couple of years or more in sincere ways. And they've turned it into this, you know, another way to live for them is like living in this, whatever crappy luxury condo complex they're going to put up. But for that message to be repeated throughout the show, it is a reminder to us to be thinking about that and like looking at the struggles of these characters and thinking, is there another way to live? You know, can we do this better? Whatever, you know, the system that we're all part of, can we figure out a better way to get through life and take care of people and each other. I think that that scene is really great. We don't, at the time, we don't know who the character, who those two guys are. Um, I actually didn't even notice it the first time out because I was just staring at Dud through the whole scene. And then Jim pointed it out and I went back and looked at it, watched it. And I was like, oh yeah. And uh, of course, yeah, it slowly pulls out and you can kind of hear them, see them overhear it and then jot down some notes. And then it turns out that, you know, a couple of episodes later, they're the ones at this meeting pitching this whole thing as, as a uh, slogan, basically, you know, I just thought it was, it's kind of perfect because, you know, in a, in a way, in a capitalist system, it's uh, almost near impossible to have a genuine concern because whatever the genuine concern is or starts off as is always going to be co-opted and um, sort of cynically turned against it. For example, I suppose, you know, the fact that there's like um, pride month 
um, which, you know, stems from a good thing. Uh, but now, of course, it's co-opted by every single giant corporation. I mean, if you go into a Starbucks, they're going to have, you know, rainbow flags and stuff like that. So to the point where, you know, if something good emits from humanity over time, capitalism can't stop itself, but to ingest it and cynically turn it against itself where it has no more meaning beyond that which it can be profitable. Yeah, so in an all in a quick moment, I think the show kind of demonstrates just how smart it is and sort of light and humorous too, you know. It's it's, it's obviously fairly cynical when you think about it, but it's also just kind of funny, you know. You, these guys are going to jot that down and make that their slogan for a town that's obviously reeling and um, seems to be on the outs economically. Another thing for me is uh, the ways in which our system puts people's back up against the wall to a point where they start, you know, good people, well-meaning people end up exploiting their peers because, you know, out of desperation, like Ernie charging Dud $2,000 to join the lodge um, because of his gambling debt, which... When it costs 200 When it costs 200 you could say, well, that's just his vice gambling, but like, why do people gamble? Because you're you're they're desperate. For, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, you're looking for more. Oh, you know, I don't have enough money because my job is crappy or whatever. Like, hey, maybe I can do this and I'll it'll help me. You know, get up to a yeah better financial state. And then also Liz getting that collection together for her dad at the memorial and then taking it and using it to pay off her debt. I don't know whether she you know was guilty about that or not, but it's kind of like no, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know that she necessarily should, but it's sort of like. She's desperate, and this bank is all over her. And the other example for me was the people who buy the uh, Dudley family's house. It was foreclosed. You know, they're just trying to do their best. They're trying to make it an American, you know, get the American dream. And so they've got this kid. They've got the house now, and they got a pool. Don't care. They've got a pool. They don't care how they got out. They don't care about the fact that you know it was foreclosed foreclosed on, and they're you know the Dudleys were kicked out, and their lives were ruined essentially. They probably got a deal on it too, right? Yeah. So like, well, it's our house now, and that kind of speaks to, in our society, a lot of times we end up exploiting or taking advantage of other people without necessarily being aware of it or even knowing it and not wanting to do the self-reflection required to realize that that's what's gone on. And I mean, you can take that all the way back to, we stole this country from Native Americans and don't really have a reckoning for that or necessarily let it affect our daily lives. Obviously, there's like many more examples throughout time. And the reason I mentioned that is because of the recurring mentions of the Tongva uh, people who used to live in that area. That that was actually the inspiration. Was, uh, there's got to be a better way to live. The native population's culture. But there's that irony of that full circle. Why this connected me with me on, on, uh, on these kind of late stage capitalism ideas and kind of such a great articulation of what it feels like to live in that because it's obviously modern it's obviously contemporary so this is you know it's their version of the reality that we live in and if, it, if you connect with the show you're connecting with that reality to some degree and i loved you know the spirit of our current age is that you see the nonsense right like it's like it's from they live remember roddy roddy piper with his special glasses like at that point you needed mm-hmm. special glasses to see the zombies and the corporate greed whatever like you needed you needed the magical device to see the world as is. We don't need that, right? Or we all we've all developed the sunglasses. Awesome. It's right um, out in the open. <laughs> yeah, everything is everything. You know, the, the quiet stuff is now loud. So this show, what I like about it is that the characters actually have to wrestle with that, right? It's actually about like the knowledge of that system. They see the pieces of it, they engage in the pieces of it, they play their roles in the piece of it. 
you know, everyone knows they're on the merry-go-round and that kind of spurs like the what next thinking because if, you know, it's going round and round, you know, you're about to see that tree, that tree, that tree, you know, you're on, you know, you're on the circle. So that's the piece that I love how self-aware the show is and then how self-aware they make their characters are. I mean, there's no better metaphor than building trebuchets to blast off and launch the detrius of the corporate world and the, you know, the old company into the water, into the ether, into the, you know, next side of the warehouse, whatever. Yeah. And was, yeah, I mean, of course, that's a big theme too, is all those people getting laid off and they're, yeah, their one little measure of satisfaction is going in there and doing like vandalism on stuff that doesn't even matter anymore. No one cares about it anymore, but it's. They have Dud making, as his, one of his temp jobs, making more exit package folders than they probably have employees to receive them at that point. I mean, there's that one scene where he's like, you know, he's got like the taped up fingers and the paper cuts and there's like towers of, uh, you know, the exit material. There's that great scene where him and Gloria are like eating at lunch tables at like five away and they're the only two people. (laughs) Right, Um, right. Yeah, it never seems like there's anybody in there ever. It seems like when he goes in on a Saturday and the office is kind of empty, it it seems like it's that way every day. Yeah. Yeah, I like what you're saying about the characters just sort of accepting that the world that they're in and just trying to kind of be in it without losing your mind. And um, I'm thinking about how uh, Herman, who's the the tough that uh, collects the money, they, you know, they kind of roll with it and understand it. Like, yeah, this is just, you know, I, they don't, they don't, they very particularly don't shoot the messenger in the show. You know, they kind of all understand that they're all sort of wrapped in it together. I mean, the only person they give any kind of grief to really is um, Bert. Yeah, yeah Bert. Um, you know, he gets it because he's you know sort of. But even though the other guy is the one who comes to collect the money, they don't really seem to. Both Ernie and um, Dud deal with him on different occasions, and Dud's dad too. In a flashback, yeah. it's such wasted energy because all three of those characters yell at Bert while they make horrendous choices. Now, now listen to me, like like I sound like a capitalist here, but um, <laughs> and that's not, not, not to say my intention, but like it is that like rage against the useless machine, you know, as you like willingly engage in the machine. Yeah, I find, found myself sort of saying like, you know, Dud, don't do it, you know, like yeah. don't do any deal with it. What do you, I, like yeah. it, it makes me uncomfortable I, actually when I'm like sort of watching it, you know, I just think it's when you're sort of mired down in it it's a little bit difficult to kind of see it from above the trees and understand it I think it's just kind of becomes a part of life I mean he's really down on his luck really or whatever you want to call it I mean he's got nothing really and that is a huge thing in this country lots of people take payday loans and usurious loans out because it's like I need this money right now I'll figure it out later yeah, yeah, no doubt. what else am I gonna do it's a huge thing and it destroys a lot of people financially. Let's stick on this. And uh, as we kind of finish out our discussion on, on late stage capitalism in the show, which I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident we will continue to talk about in the real time context of season two, but would you, I was been thinking about this as we were just kind of thinking on this show. Do you think almost season one's theme in that world of late stage capitalism was actually debt and usury? And do you think that'll switch in season two? Because in some ways, their debt narratives were wrapped at the end of season one, if you think about it. Did Dud pay his off? Yeah, he pays his sister back, and he kind of right. uses he pays Dud. Uses well, he lets go of his car. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if that covers all his debt, but no, it's I'm sure he's not at zero, but he's not, like, he's in a different place than he was episode yeah. one. He, yeah, he's no longer taking money from him, at least. It's like the bleeding has stopped, I think. Um, and the lodge itself was, you know, going under as well. And it they, saved. it's it saved. saved. Yeah. We don't know why. 
Right. I get there's the secrets and mysteries. Yeah, there's um, there's obviously a reason why they think there's that they shouldn't close it down. But if it wasn't for that reason, they would have closed it down without question. So. Right, but from, um, the, from the members of Lodge 49, it was, we weren't going to exist, we are going to exist, you know, like it was a right. save from debt, save from clo- foreclosure. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't... Obviously think, Liz. Oh, well, yeah, Liz. Yeah, that... From under her debt. That I'm just kind of curious to see if we'll get, like, if there was, like, if we'll, there maybe could be, you know, there's plenty of topics in late-stage capitalism to, like, kind of go at that multidimensionally, but I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if that remains to be kind of a driver theme. I... I suspect that it will just kind of continue throughout the show. I mean, it seems to be pretty thickly woven with the idea of a cl- group and class of people that are, you know, financially struggling. Oh, for sure. I just wonder if it'll yeah. focus on a different entrapment of capitalism. <laughs> mm. Right. So let's kind of try to blue sky. What do we think about, what about the question? But I mean, the existential question of the show, as Jim pointed out, is maybe like, if, if not this, what next, you know, or, you know, the way they wrap that up into the slogan, the way Doug talks about it wistfully as, you know, some, you know, kind of fairyland past. What are your thoughts? Does the show give us any clues on what would be next or could be next or would be the, at least the driving values of something? For me, there was no indication of here is the better way to live or to take this, our modern way of life and, and turn it into something that's better for people. For me, it was as a function of some characters' frustration with the way things are, desperation, they're turning to those mysteries of alchemy and whatever else was going on at the lodge behind the scenes, especially Blaze represents that. He's always, he seems convinced that through some form of magic, he's going to get himself to, I don't know, a higher plane. And Dud is so fascinated with the alchemical ideas going on there that I feel like, you know, maybe he, he thinks that they are somehow going to improve his life and maybe those of others and even Ernie with, you know, Ernie at the end is like, we already said, he goes off with El Confidente because it's like, what do I have to lose? Who, what, you know, what do I have going on? Um, why don't, why don't I give into this idea that we're going to go find these magical scrolls and who knows? I don't know if that's a message that, you know, people are so downtrodden and disillusioned that the only way they can think things will get better is through some kind of magic or or supernatural intervention. I don't know. I definitely think the show wants you to think about, I mean, it has enough magical realism. I think it is a commentary on magical realism, whether it's like a solution or not, I think is yet to be determined, but I definitely think it wants to think about that. The two things I've been wondering about are one, like there's one such Horatio Alger kind of, resilience narrative which you know like which it has and comments negatively against or like the futility of resilience and that kind of two-headed coin but the other one i think you know i think the show with the show ultimately has an opinion which does have implications for future economic political systems is fellowship you know it really does you know like there's a piece around friendship fellowship you know kind of alternative ways that aren't government mandated or or family predetermined around how people group so I, I do think that it, it's offering that systems that start from like kind of a relationships matter standpoint, it definitely believes it's part of the solution, I would say, from at least from season one. Kind of there's some characters and relationships on the show that represent things that if it were a show that were trying to be darker and more blatantly societally relevant, these relationships or these these uh interactions would end up being more, I don't know, seriously like, like 
Liz at work, her manager, Jeremy, is it? Yeah, Jeremy. The boss, like he has a crush on her. He tells her he loves her. And like we were saying, like everybody's in the sort of the same boat. Like Jeremy's the manager, but he's probably not making that much more than Liz. You know, I don't know. I'm thinking about these kinds of restaurants where they're probably having him work. If he's the manager, I'm sure they have him on for something like 60 hours a week, especially if they're paying him salary. What they'll do is they'll say, you know, well, we're going to put you on for salary and maybe they'll, it'll even be $50,000 a year, which will yeah, seem high. Trap of yeah. salary work. Yeah. Right. And then, but then they want you there six days a week and, you know, from morning, noon, and night. Okay. And um, proud to say, I do not do that. Even though he, he has a power dynamic over her because he's the manager, you know, they're still in the same economic boat in a sense because, you know, especially he's got a kid too. So um, maybe he probably doesn't yeah. have $80,000. That was one of my favorite debt. scenes of the entire first season where. Liz refuses to hold the baby you, and it just freaks that woman out so much. That, that really clicked with you, right? She, you don't like to hold babies. No, I do. I like babies. <laughs> but I just like the idea of like something that everyone thinks is this universal principle. Like everyone loves babies and everyone loves to hold them. Just being screwed with and have that partly define Liz's character, you know? She's like, no, that's just not me and I'm not going to pretend and I'm not going to bend to whatever you think I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that you didn't like babies, no, but I, 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 I can understand why fan. people don't like to hold uh, babies. Yeah, I like holding babies when they're like six months or older, but if they're newer than that, I'm scared that, I don't know, their yeah. head is always lolling around and they're so fragile. I'm like, ah, it's too scary. It's too yeah, scary. No, I, One of the brilliant parts of the show, what they do with Jeremy is, and what I think is a, what I appreciate, and I think why we all love the show, why it kind of like, you know, kind of elevated itself amongst, you know, literally thousands of options on whatever it is we call television nowadays. Every show has a creepy boss, right? Nobody has, very few shows have self-actualized, I've read the consent manual, I'm working on myself, creepy boss. And just for, for, as creative choices go, without even getting into like the personal professional politics of it all, it was just such a you know, refreshingly different take on the creepy boss that it was entertaining to watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Jeremy's, I, I think, is a very, very likable character. I mean... Yeah, you're not supposed to dislike him. but that right. right, and there's a similar dynamic at Ernie's job, where Brian Doyle Murray, who plays his boss, is always kind of like, I'll pay you next week, or I'll pay you next month. And he's always pitting him against, always pitting Ernie against beautiful Jeff, where they have to compete for things that they want. And so it's, it's like not an ideal work situation where you're like always you're not getting what you deserve. You're having to compete for foolish things, but at the same time, they all like each other and they get along and it's sort of good natured in a way, but it like, you know, like you're saying with Jeremy and Liz being in the same boat, I can all be like same thing with these guys. He's the boss, but all of them are in together where it's like, we're trying our best as salesmen selling toilet parts or whatever. Right. If and they, they work know, on commission. They may all work on commission. Yeah, and like, so, you know, and I would say Brian Doyle Murray almost is more sexually harassing to beautiful Jeff than uh, Jeremy yeah, is to yeah. Liz. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he fakes his coma to get it right. So, Writes in the poem. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. He's, it's really creepy. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, didn't, I found that a little bit charming too. Just weird. Yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it goes on so much throughout <laughs> it it, that it's just like it when, he, when he's faking that he's still in the coma, you, you definitely get why. All right, so let's, um, you know, we start to get into kind of the different different kinds of way pe people interact and kind of like, you know, we kind of live in this messy society. Uh, there's a lot of commentary in the show around, you know, I don't, it's not overt comment, commentary, but there's a, it, it's saying a lot about 
different race relations, different interactions between different male, female, et cetera, et cetera. And it really brought up a question for me about, you know, is this actually part of the magical thinking? Is it this the show sort of saying like, hey, you know, the kind of like forever dream if the working class, you know, people of different ethnic backgrounds or whatever could just unite, you'd get an uprising. So is it like magical thinking and sort of seeing that or is it more a reality? Because the the way that race and different kind of social classifications intermingle, I don't know. Is is it's it's really it's really striking. It's really something that you notice even just a couple episodes in. At least I did. Yeah, I, I feel like I noticed it kind of right away. Um, it always seems that in shows they uh, they have to they have to they're sort of bound to make a point of the fact that uh, you know that they have to really kind of spell out the race lesson. You know, like these are our black friends, you know, and a very, and a lot of times it will be something that's very topical. That's literally going on in society in the last six months or something that the episode will sort of be about. And I always thought it would be uh, cool to see something. And I think that's one of the things I kind of immediately kind of picked up on was that it's sort of uh, there and not there, um, you know? So like, you're not really, I'm not anyway accustomed to seeing uh, shows where the white main characters have like black and uh, Latino kind of, and Asian characters kind of come in and out, you know, with, with the same kind of frequency as, as the white characters. And, you know, there's just something very beautifully unremarkable about it, you know, like it's just sort of there. And I, to me, I feel like I've been kind of waiting to see something like this. So I sort of, I sort of noticed it almost right away and just thought it was like a really good way of, of handling it. You know, it kind of, it's sort of like a, kind of makes me think of like a Bernie Sanders-ish vision of, uh, you know, that people are bound more economically than they are divided by race. And, you know, I am very almost naively optimistic kind of person, um, but I do think that is the way it is when people are in the same economic class or like work at the same place together. I mean, there's a camaraderie there because you sort of understand each other. You, uh, you know, go through the same things that they go through. You have the same kind of challenges, you know, I mean, and I, it's almost impossible not to, uh, you know, like people that are in that same, um, same boat as you, same struggles. You're, of course, going to see eye to eye with them, I think. So, I mean, I think it does exist. What I kind of really love is that the show is so smart about casting a, along a long tail, right? Like, so you really, minor characters, characters that come and go, background scenes do such a good job, especially if you live in anything remotely intermixed in some capacity, large urban centers or areas where there's no dominant or there, you know, there are many sub-minorities, whatever the case, if you're living in a non-homogenized place, just become a reality, right? And I think the show does a good job of actually some of the background diversity or secondary character diversity is to me what kind of really kind of shows that the show, where, where the show's playing with some of those ideas you're talking about, Bart. Mm -hmm. So another thing that we, you know, we're not, I don't know how deep we'll get into this, but, you know, a big underlying theme, we've sort of talked about it, we called it magical thinking, but then really the epicenter for that on the show is the lodge itself. And we have, you know, one, the lodge as being kind of this fraternal order that's connected places, has all kinds of symbolism and myths and mysteries and sort of origin stories that both for the Lodge 49 itself and then a larger network of, of Lynx lodges that it's a part of. And then we even also kind of go a little extra with that, with talk of the missing scrolls and the real lot, the, the true lodge versus the kind of like front lodge. Uh, and then of course we, 
which I'm pretty sure we talked a little bit about in the last episode, uh, you know, discovering the old, the old leader. It was, mum- oh, sorry, I know I'm gonna get this wrong, but it was somehow kept in suspended state, his carcass, um, along with all of his, uh, you know, some of his uh, tooling and books, which Blaze then goes on to discover. What do we think, you know, it's one of those things where it's playing on enough of that imagery and enough of that thinking that you never quite know if it's winking at it, it's buying into it, or if it's completely laughing at it, which I think is actually brilliant that you never know what that's coming from. Uh, but I know that, you know, when we always talk about the show, we're always kind of going deeper into different pieces of the symbolism. So, so kind of where does, where does your all's mileage vary on how interested you are on kind of decoding the symbolism of the lodge or the show itself? To me, it's sort of secondary. I, I really like the human element of it and the humor of it. And to me, that that stuff is not, I, I don't dislike it, but I, it's not as important to me quite as much. I also think that I just generally don't always follow that stuff. So it just kind of becomes like, you know, an interesting color in the background. And if you tried to explain it to me, I would probably nod and still not understand it anyway. But um, yeah, to me, I think it's a very, I don't know. I, I, I like the mysticism of the lodge. Um, I think it's a, a great part of the show, but actually figuring it out, like keeping tabs on it is probably not something that I would sort of do. I just, you know, it's going to be all part of the general tapestry though. I do like it. And I'm, I'm actually really kind of excited to see. I can't help, but when I'm in these situations, kind of rooting for the characters that it's going to work out for them. And I can never convince myself in my subconscious that it's, that's not the point. It's not going to happen. So I'm actually like rooting for them to get this uh, alchemy together, make some gold, save the lodge, you know, get everybody out of debt and then live happily ever after. Get rich. And get, I'll just, you know, just, you know, all these great people wouldn't have to be stuck working three jobs and all that kind of stuff. And, I don't think that's where it's going to go um, in my rational thought, but yeah. But yeah, to, to me, you know, I, one of my favorite moments of the season two was when he, uh, when Blaze yanks that um, worm. worm out of his nose. <laughs> I mean, just because I thought it was so sort of gross and but beautiful and sentimental at the same time, how happy everybody was for him, you know, it was really, <laughs> I don't know. It's just such a charming moment, I thought. But it kind of like, it, the show sort of teases this and to some of you are like me anyway, I kind of, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. And it goes in the back of my head and I don't think about it much. And then it comes back out. Um, so Blaze brings up that uh, he's got this inside of the, the normal doctors won't um, diagnose and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't really think of it as coming back into play, but it does. And I feel like the magic, the like sort of the magical stuff of it as well is sort of similar to that. It's like a little bit in the background, but then it comes, comes through in a very nice way that's uh, fun to watch. You know, the shows I think is very good about tying together these, th- anything that it, anything that it shows or does, it comes back later or there's an explanation for. And which I think is interesting because so much, so much of the commentary that you'll read, will, people will say like, I don't know where the show is going. It doesn't seem to have a plot or, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It really does. It just, it's very intricate and you got to kind of pay close attention, you know? Yeah, I'm with Bart in that it's not as important to me where they go with the mysteries as, you know, the human element of the show and what's happening with the characters. But I'm in for it. Whatever happens, yeah, I've been amused and intrigued so far by that element of the show. So it's kind of like I don't have any specific hopes that, like, I really hope this happens or this is who's running the underground True Lodge and... England or whatever, you know, it's just kind of like whatever, whatever happens, happens. I'm there for it. I'm glad that it's not 
the show is not mainly about that. I'm fine with it being, like you said, part, you know, part of the tapestry of it. We'll see. I'm curious to see in season two, like if it kind of continues on, if it continues to ramp up, if it actually starts to dominate some of the show. My sense is that there's all these complexities that still have mundane answers. And like the, that's where the worm is a great example, right? There's nothing that that's not magical, right? That's a completely scientifically, you know, legitimate thing. People have like those kind of things. That it would actually come out that way though. <laughs> sure. It's got to get out some way. Right? Like, I, I, I would be willing to bet that that is completely scientifically plausible. <laughs> no, no, maybe, maybe. There's more to life than what's dreamt up in your philosophy, Horatio, right? Like that's a, there's there's more to heaven on earth than we can figure out at any one time, just even using science, you know? Um, I don't know. To me, that was, I would bet that it is some scientific back behind it. But I, I thought the, yeah, I don't know. I saw it as like sort of a validation of someone who has been chastised by the scientific minded. I think the show has a good time tweaking that that kind of imagery, playing around with conspiracy theories, like giving them enough credence and then also making fun of them that I think it wants to keep you sort of guessing and 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 but also wants to be kind of accurate and right that if people are into that or reading for that, they'll get excited that they're you know that it isn't just hollow. You know, Bart, you were saying you've gotten down some Reddit rabbit holes and which is great that people are out there kind of digging around but i i have a i suspect that the the showrunners and the writers are throwing some of those things in there knowing that that people are going to follow those and they, they may not like necessarily lead anywhere plot wise but they're kind of almost like little like it's dangling red herrings out there all the time so what's what's your favorite what's your favorite repeated symbolism of the lodge of the show i'll start with mine give you guys a chance to think because i threw that one on you to me it's not necessarily of the whole show but <laughs> The Norwal being the thing that impales the the captain, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. this kind of like mad scientific but magical creature, magical but kind of scientific creature. The opulence of his own capitalistic greed, and then also to make his wife happy by putting a ridiculous Norwal statue is a thing that impales him. I guess not impale. What does that when it goes through your eye? Yeah, I, I think that's impale. It's got it. Yeah. If that's not an impale, I don't know what is. I think it, yeah, it counts. Um, right, so that was one of my favorite little like pieces of symbolism. It isn't necessarily lodge centric, but it was I enjoyed that one. Maybe for me, having not yeah, given this much advanced thought, just the whole squire knight thing and the idea that they're on this quest in a way. And Dud keeps talking about how he's Ernie's squire. I'm your squire and, you know, you got to mentor me, essentially. It's kind of silly, but it also, what's up? Larry gives him the squire's kit, which he obsessed with in that last episode, like going over and looking at. Yeah. So for him, it's kind of like, this is a piece of identity I didn't have earlier. I'm a squire, you know, there's something fun about that. That's a great one. Yeah. From pool, you know, cause the pool guy and the, being a Dudley were like it. So like, there is that, that replacement of identity. Bart? One of the things I would have, parts I really liked was um, Liz's dream that she has where nothing happens. And she kind of explains that to um, the guys in the back. She's like, you know, I had a dream about this place, but what was weird about it was that it wasn't, there wasn't anything even weird about it. The type of dream that she has where customers comes out and the customer asks her something very stupid, like whether they can get something that it's was like the St. Patty's day the, stir fry. Or stir fry. Yeah. That's what it is. You know, I've had so many of those kinds of dreams before where it's just like a tension dream when she says like it's weird nothing happened i mean my dreams are the opposite of that they're like stress dreams 
where, you know, everything is going wrong and you can't get to the people in time and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I identified with that a lot, but I thought that that was also sort of a great way of exemplifying just how static everybody's sort of life is that, you know, uh, it's kind of a shitty dead end job. And not only that, but you take it home with you in your dreams. But even then in the dreams itself, uh, it was sort of boring and not, nothing really happening. That stagnation, I, I thought that was a, a very powerful uh, metaphor for the show and for the people stuck in that sort of condition. Uh, one thing I was going to mention that segues into talking about season two, which we don't have to yet, but is that the first, ep- they've got episode titles up on IMDb already, and the f- title of the first episode of season two is All Circles Vanish, Ooh. which I happened to notice while I was rewatching season one, and that that is something that that guy Avery, who's the imposter who pretends to be the guy from England, mm-hmm. um, he says that a couple times, a couple different times, and he's got this idea that Dud and Ernie know more than they're saying, that they're involved in some kind of conspiracy, and you know he seems to know something about the True Lodge that no one else does, and so that's sort of his phrase: "All circles vanish," and that's that's what that first episode is going to be about. So I'm interested to see what that means in the context of where they're taking the, the story. Yeah, he definitely is a, a, a character, I, I think, that kind of um, seemed to have a lot of importance that we didn't find out yet about in season one. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where he goes in season two. I had forgotten this about the first time I watched it, but he basically is driving a bus and he, um, you know, I think he sees an article in the newspaper and he just stops and jumps off the bus. <laughs> He's like taking kids to camp or something like that. And he just literally jumps out of the bus and starts running because what he just read in the mm-hmm. newspaper was so such a huge deal that he stops what he's doing to kind of follow through on it. And then I remember thinking that he was just sort of like, oh, it was like a really weird con man, but he obviously has a, a pretty large significance and uh, they kind of just tease it and we don't really know where it's sort of headed. So I'm, I'm excited for that development. And that was another example of the kind of quiet, unremarkable approach to diversity where he and Blaze end up in this, you know, relationship for oh, yeah. a time and exactly. yeah. sleeping together, having sex, and no one's ever like, this is a gay person, you know? It's just kind of like, oh, these dudes are together right now. And that's that. I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing the, the importance to it, but I just think it's very, it's, it's, it's both refreshing and sort of the way it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's what your the goal is, I think, is to, in a way just make it normalized into acceptance where it doesn't have to be discussed all the time. You know, right. it just is an actual, like the same way you don't discuss why people are straight. Yeah, exactly. They did no establishing shot or a character moment other than, you know, when the relationship emerged, which they also didn't really comment on either. Yeah. No, they just don't. I think, if I remember correctly, they just kind of cut to them in bed, like yeah. the morning after, and they're chatting. Yeah, that whole relationship is uh, like it was extra painful when I watched it the second time around because um, because he's being deceived. He's well, being, not even, but he wants. He really enjoys the, the, the yeah. like he and he kind of says as much to some degree. But that like he Blaze seems to thrive when there's something that's like in the realm of make believe. Like he almost sort of hasn't grown up in a way. It was hard to tell whether that. Guy, Avery was in it only for like Blaze's got to get close to because he knows about these secrets. He knows so much about the lodge, or if he maybe also had some genuine. I do think it was. Him, I, I think it was both. I think it was a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. does that like come with me, right? Doesn't he say like like whatever? Because we're not quite sure what resistance or quest for the true lodge that character's on. Right. 
we know there's something along those lines, but we don't, we, we're kept in the dark even through all of season one. But he does say to Blaze, like, you, you seem like a, you know, like, you know, he seems like a new recruit, which would lend credence to the idea that there was some kind of human connection there. Yeah. We're going to move on and just to do some quick hot takes from the trailer here in a second. But one thing we've kept talking about, and I want to at least acknowledge, is how good the music is on the show. The music supervisor is this uh, English musician and DJ and writer named Tom Patterson. Uh, he actually edits the UK magazine Shindig, which would give you a pretty good clue about what kind of music he likes and what kind of music is in Lodge 49. It's this mix of 60s pop, folky, electronica, you know, surfer, surfer, indie music from the mostly the 90s or influence from the 90s, which I know is Jim Gavin. That's what he's a fan of. So that comes in through him. He and I think he helped pick Tom Patterson. Jim Gavin must reference things like Stereo Lab and other bands like that in the short stories, like in every single one. So you kind of you again, you see the sort of beginnings of some Lodge 49 elements in those books. But bands like Broadcast, Felt, uh, Lee Hazelwood's on the soundtrack. This band, the Sound Carriers, who were kind of like atmospheric, psychedelic, they were actually recruited to write the score out of kind of retirement. They ended up not being able to do it, but they did donate some songs and, and it become very instrument. They actually reunited basically because of the show. So that's kind of a cool little story. And just to give shout out, the person who actually does the scoring of the show and works with the Thompson is a man named Andrew Carroll. So he does all the score and then of course those bands and other bands like i just mentioned and it gives such a great atmospheric there's a much like the show there's a through point all those songs make sense together but they're mm-hmm. all from radically different genres and like eras you know i guess probably because the uh lee hazelwood you know in the very beginning i sort of imagined that a lot of the music was you know maybe from the 60s maybe earlier or a little later and then i went i i think i found like a link that was showing the album covers as you listen to the songs someone wrote an article about how great the music was and on that was a link to you know i think eight or ten songs or something and yeah that's when i kind of noticed that what you just said that it comes from all kinds of different eras and i thought that was kind of remarkable that they are blended so well to the point that i mean i definitely the music is fantastic I've, i've been playing the uh Spotify playlist at the the restaurant for a while. It's great. We'll put two links in the show notes to some one, the official soundtrack of season one, and then somebody who went really deep and did kind of a songs of and inspired by soundtrack. We'll put both those links in the show notes so you can check out those playlists. All right. Well, actually, the trailer for season two just dropped recently. We watched it uh, multiple times, and that's a good transition out of this kind of preseason two for episode. Uh, as we all get excited for August 12th. Again, if you're listening to this after season one and just are a completist, then you're following along in your own timeline. Uh, But the trailer is out. We'll put that in the show notes as well so that you can see what we see. Uh, There's a lot going on. And even in a couple trailers I've seen, it gets me super excited. Some hints of new characters. But I think the thing that kind of got me that I really noticed in the trailer was that new agey executive uh, training piece was still a part of it. And I even see some other members of Liz's restaurant family kind of going deeper into that. So we talked about in the last episode that that is a lodge in and of itself, that whole corporate management piece is its own secret society. So I love that they're keeping some of those elements. If I had to guess, I would have thought that that probably was like a part of that particular arc in season one and probably wouldn't return. So I was excited uh, to see some little elements of that in the trailer. Oh, and I jumped the line. Sorry, Bart. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the, from the trailer, I, I've seen a couple of different ones now. 
One of my uh, favorite lines I'm looking forward to is when uh, there's a new family that's opened up a shop where the pool shop was and uh, Dud goes in to check it out. And she says, the woman says, uh, we feel this is an emerging neighborhood. And he says, emerging from what? You know, and I thought that was really funny. And, and uh, you know, continuing with the whole theme of the late stage capitalism. And yeah, uh, also, it looks like he gets the thing back, which is uh, very encouraging. Yeah. Uh, yeah the, I was very bummed when he had to give up that car. It seemed like such a part of his identity. Um, it was almost as if he had to sell a surfboard or something, you know, like also just think that it's such a, the car itself, the thing is kind of like, I don't know, a symbol for the whole show in general, you know, it's kind of weird and kooky, but kind of awesome too, you know, like, so, uh, so I don't know. Yeah. I'm excited about that too. looks like it's gonna be great. They're always trying to buy it. Right. Like he's always getting to like, sell your car, sell your auto cash for junk. Cash yeah. Junk. Yeah. This is a classic. They, him and Ernie both say the same thing. Yeah. Like he says, this is a classic. And then Ernie says, this is a Cadillac. Yeah. yeah. They both get the same flyer. It's, Great. Uh, yeah, seeing some new faces in there makes me wonder if they've done some more recruiting into the lodge. We'll see. Dud is trying to pay for a drink with a lemon, and so he's probably still broke, even though he got his car back. We'll see. And uh, I like that it's not giving too much away, just sort of glimpses to entice you. We see El Confidente. Yeah, more Cheech, Cheech Marin. In a couple of scenes. So we will see what's on top for these characters soon in a couple of weeks, a few weeks. That's right. So... Again, reminder, this was just part of our two-episode kind of catch-up, some of our thoughts on season one, test out the pipes a little bit. We realize we don't want to have all of the sound quality exactly right. Um, you know, none of us are polished broadcasters, obviously, but we're so excited about the show. And we wanted to get something out there before the season two starts so that we can really hit the ground running for our weekly recap show, which will start uh, after the first episode airs on August 12th. And we'll get together some more channels to contact us, et cetera, et cetera, once the show gets up and running. So thanks for listening to our uh, preseason, postseason preseason, we'll call it. I'm excited to be doing this, you guys. Are you ready for the season? Yeah. Can't wait. As above, so below. As above, so below. All right. We'll see you when season two emerges. A bullwhip. A chalice, a snow globe. Out of these objects, you will dreamstorm a marketing plan for your shadow chain. You have 20 minutes.